One of the things that I, you know, think about and keeps me up at night and terrifies me is that we don't actually fully understand what's caused obesity. This is this is a problem when it's it's the single greatest change in human health in at least a thousand years, if not longer. Dr. Dariush Mozafarian is a cardiologist and the director of the Food is Medicine Institute at Tufts University. Fundamentally, I can't tell you with 100% certainty what has caused the, the modern obesity epidemic. But I will tell you that all the signs, all the indications point to food. We're in uh, Dollar General in Helena, right? Not West Helena. Other way around. We're in West Helena? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know how anyone keeps that straight. My producer Aaron Bump and I are in Helena, West Helena, Arkansas. We're at one of the five dollar okay. stores in the town of 10,000 people. Ooh, they have, what do you think these are? Takis. What do you think these are? So like one of the first foods you see walking in is something called Takis. One that is blue heat, one is zombies, one is fuego. Are these food? Avery rings us up at the Dollar General. Have you ever eaten tacos? Not them kind. That's a new flavor. Zombies is a new flavor? Yes, sir. All right. All right, here, you ready to try a taki? Yeah. You want to try one? Sure. Avery, so you're the expert because you've had takis before. No, oh, they really are green. Okay. Help yourself. Not my favorite. <laughs> they get better? Yeah. Not at the beginning. At the beginning, they give off a spooky taste. Mm. I actually kind of like them. I mean, they're... Uh, you gotta eat more yeah, I think yeah. you do. Yeah. Want another one? Helena, West Helena, Arkansas is the county seat of Phillips County, the most impoverished in the state. Stephanie Loveless has lived here nearly all her life. She tells us about her hometown. We are surrounded by lots of water, so people love fishing here. We love um, boating. Helena West Helena is on the Mississippi River in the Arkansas Delta. Helena and West Helena were once two separate towns, but declining population forced them to combine in 2006. And then we also uh, have a lot of historic homes downtown and a lot of churches. We have a church on every corner. We talk with Stephanie in the gym at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences East, a community health center. She's its director. We're a very flat agricultural community. It may be agricultural, but Phillips County is the most food insecure county in Arkansas. That means its residents experience the most hunger. And Phillips County is also the most obese in Arkansas. Stephanie describes the local crops. So you're going to see a lot of Rice, cotton, soybeans. We don't sell rice for individual consumption. You know, cotton doesn't, we can't, we can't eat that. Um, soybeans are for, you know, usually it's for chicken feed. So it, 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 it's kind of ironic um, that, that we have all of this, but, you know. There are barriers between the community and fresh produce. 
Um, we have limited grocery stores. We have one Walmart here in, it's actually in West Helena. So people in Helena have no access to a grocery store. They have to travel, which becomes a problem for people because people are don't have transportation. Um, not a lot of option for even at our Walmart. It's just amazing the difference in quality of what we have here and what, what we get here versus other areas. In part due to a lack of access to nutritious food, people with lower incomes are more likely to have obesity. The relationship between hunger and obesity is counterintuitive, but increasingly common. Today, many low-income communities do not have a full-service grocery store, but in downtown Helena... They do have a Dollar General, so a lot of people walk to that store to purchase food. Um, and so a lot of the times that's unhealthy. Um, it's boxed products. It's not fresh. I know dollar stores is a place to buy zombie Takis, but they're all over rural America, especially in low-income areas like Helena, West Helena. There are more dollar stores now in the U.S. than there are Walmart, Target, Starbucks, McDonald's combined. Kennedy Smith is a senior researcher at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. She tells us that dollar stores are like locusts, descending on communities and often reducing access to fresh foods. When you have three dollar stores uh, open within a two-mile radius of an existing grocery store, the grocery store will likely close. So three dollar stores will probably close one grocery store. And in lower-income communities, they tend to spend less on fresh, healthy food than they would if they had access to a grocery store. Dollar stores don't claim to be grocery stores, but in many communities, they serve as them by default. While Americans make only 2% of their household food purchases at dollar stores, they're still the fastest-growing food retailers, especially in low-income and rural communities. Dollar stores devote much of their food shelf space to ultra-processed foods that are higher in calories and lower in nutrients, like zombie Takis. So in places like Phillips County, many residents are nutrient-insecure, and nutrient insecurity translates to obesity. For people like Dariush Mozafarian, that's a call to action. If all food was reasonably healthy reasonably safe, we wouldn't have to worry about this. And, and that's how we deal with problems in every other sector of our economy. If we discovered that mobile phones are causing cancer, we change the phone. If we discover that a certain mattress type is, is more likely to catch fire, we, we change the mattress type. If we find out that electric batteries in a car have a defect that makes it more likely that they're going to blow up, we, we deal with it. And yet somehow food, which is killing 10,000 Americans per week, Per week is the estimate that 10,000 Americans are directly being killed by a poor diet. We just sort of say, well, people need to, to make better choices. And so you need a coordinated strategy. And what we've seen very clearly is there's not one thing to do, but there's also not a thousand things to do. There's about 20 or 30 major actions we could take and really, really fix this problem. From the Stanford Center on Longevity, this is Century Lives, A Lifetime of Inequality. In this episode, we explore some of the major actions that have the collective potential to fix the obesity epidemic. I'm producer Aaron Bump. And I'm your host, Ken Stern. Support for this podcast comes from the National Council on Aging, the national voice working to ensure that every person can age with health, financial security, and dignity. Find out more at ncoa.org. And from AARP, the nation's largest nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to empowering people 50 and older to choose how they live as they age. 
To learn more, visit aarp.org. Since 1980, obesity rates in the U.S. have climbed from about 14% to over 42% today. Obesity increased despite dietary changes. We gained weight through the low-fat movement in the late 1990s and early 2000s. We ate fewer carbs, yet studies show that it was no more effective than low-fat regimens. Now we eat less sugar than we did at the turn of the 21st century. We've exercised more since then too, but still our obesity rates have skyrocketed. People with obesity have a body mass index of 30 or higher. BMI is a simplistic metric that is under scrutiny in the medical community, but for now, it's still used. Obesity rates have increased in every sector of American society, rich and poor, white and black, young and old. But it's not quite an equal opportunity affliction. Low- and middle-income women have obesity rates nearly 40% higher than high-income women and 25% higher than low-income men. Today, obesity is considered a chronic disease. Half a million Americans die every year from obesity-induced illnesses like diabetes, hypertension, and cardiovascular disease. In fact, early deaths of people in midlife caused by obesity have doubled in the 21st century. And poor diets are one of the biggest risk factors for all-cause mortality bringing down our overall life expectancy by about two and a half years. So how did we get here? Right around 1970, there was sort of a global change in, in our food system. Mozafarian explains. We had a, a quadrupling of the world's population in 100 years, and there was tremendous fears of, of global starvation, that the planet was going to starve, which led to the Green Revolution, this idea that we had to, to dramatically change how we grew crops, corn, rice, wheat, soy. And the Green Revolution was profound. We dramatically increased food production around the world. As we made more food, we changed the method of production. We fortified those foods with, with vitamins to, to deal with the vitamin deficiencies. And so when you walk down the cereal aisle today in a big supermarket and you see all these boxes and boxes of processed food that are starchy, cheap, you know, uh, calories from cornstarch, rice, you know, wheat, wheat, refined wheat. A growing and hungry world needed more food, more vitamins, and shelf-stable products to handle uncertain supply chains. Industrially produced, ultra-processed foods helped fill these new requirements. That was not a nefarious plot to make us sick. That was the conscious goals of the 20th century. Deal with vitamin deficiency diseases and make sure we have enough calories that the planet doesn't starve. The plan was a runaway success, with an emphasis on runaway. Foods we reformulated had unexpected adverse effects. So those changes, which all happen around the same time, to me, are very clearly the top likely drivers of the obesity epidemic. Because in changing our food, we changed our fundamental biology when we digest the food. So we have oversimplified food to calories rather than understanding biology. And so I think if we can understand biology, we can fix food. And now we need to change the way we think about obesity. I think that for, you know, at least the first 20 years of the obesity epidemic, everybody just sort of shrugged and said people need to get educated and eat better. Like this was the problem of, of individual choice. And we have to see that, that, that when being normal weight is now the exception, right? By far, this is no longer personal responsibility, but a, but a broken system. And it's not just true of the U.S. Obesity is now a problem around the world. That fact that it's a global problem, that there's not a single nation that's had uh, even flat uh, um, rates of obesity, 
shows that there's a global systems change that has led to this. A global change to our food system. Experts theorize that the rise of ultra-processed foods like zombie takis are a leading cause of the obesity epidemic. But how do they cause obesity? And what exactly are these ultra-processed foods? Ultra-processed foods are categorized by the NOVA Food Classification System. It's different than the five food groups developed by the USDA that we're also familiar with. One of the surprising things about this categorization system is that they don't refer to nutrients at all. So it's completely agnostic with respect to salt, sugar, fat, fiber, saturated fat, all the things that you might normally think about in terms of uh, what's good or bad for you in food. Dr. Kevin Hall is a scientist at the National Institutes of Health. The NOVA system groups foods according to how much processing they undergo. NOVA has four categories. The first category is basically minimally processed foods or whole foods. Things like produce, eggs, milk, meat, and nuts. Category two foods are uh, called processed culinary ingredients. These are things that I like to think of as uh, foods that you don't eat on their own. So they might be sugar um, or salt or flour or cooking oils, um, things like that, that most people you will not find uh, sitting in a corner eating a bowl of sugar or something But Category 1 foods are combined with Category 2 foods to create Category 3 foods or processed foods, um, things that you might uh, prepare as part of a meal or you might actually um, uh, use to kind of preserve the foods or make them tastier. Pasta, cheese, tuna fish. And then basically one way to think about it is everything else is ultra-processed. But everything else is a pretty broad definition. One kind of rules of thumb would be to kind of take a look at the ingredients list. And if you see things that you wouldn't normally see in kind of a home kitchen, then it's probably an indicator that it's ultra-processed. Ingredients like gums, emulsifiers, hydrogenated oils, and natural flavors. Helpful, but still somewhat vague. Ultra-processed foods are also defined as having more than five ingredients or having ingredients that are hard to pronounce. And Dariush Mozafarian gives us a completely different tip. Look at the ratio of carbohydrate to fiber. For every 10 grams of total carbohydrate, there should be at least one gram of fiber. That's roughly the, the, the carb to fiber in, in whole wheat. It sounds like a silly rule, this kind of 10 to 1 ratio, but it actually works pretty darn well. Back at the Dollar General, we put our new knowledge of ultra-processed foods to the test. Ooh, we do have lots of ranch dressing. We have, wait, this is my new favorite aisle. We have buffalo ranch dressing. We have ranch dressing with buttermilk. We have ranch white dressing. We have. You want to find out if it's ultra processed or not? I'm going to bet it is. Okay. So what's your ratio of carbohydrates to fiber? Uh, two grams of total carbohydrates. But it is a lot more than the dietary fiber, which is zero. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. That sounds like a losing ratio. Yeah. Could you make this at home, Ken, this buffalo ranch? I do love buffalo ranch, but no, I couldn't make this at home. I do not have any xanthan gum or modified food starch, phosphoric acid, monosodium glutamate, desdium inosinate, and guanolate. Who makes up these names of chemicals? I mean, can't you come up with, like, better names than that? Maybe they're the scientists' last names. Monosodium glutamate. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, and more. Look, more chips. By all of our definitions, buffalo ranch dressing is an ultra-processed food. 
It has more than five total ingredients, some of which Ken doesn't have in his kitchen, and many of which he can't pronounce. Plus, it doesn't have any fiber. But I love buffalo ranch dressing. Of course you do. Ultra-processed foods are industrial produced to be irresistible, so we'll eat a lot of them. A whole lot of them. Today, nearly 60% of the food the average American consumes is ultra-processed. And these foods tend to be high in sugar, salt, fat, and carbs. So at first, experts thought it was their poor nutritional content that contributed to obesity. Until a study Hall conducted in 2019. Then the question was, is there something in addition to those nutrients of concern that drive people to overeat and gain weight? And, and we designed a study to test that. For one month, Hall's study controlled the diets of two groups of healthy volunteers. One group ate a diet of mostly ultra-processed foods for two weeks, while the other group ate a diet without them. Then the groups switched diets. The two groups got meals with the same amount of calories, sugar, salt, fat, and carbs. So what we were interested in was, would there be any difference between how much people chose to eat on a diet that was high in ultra-processed food versus a diet that had zero percent of calories from ultra-processed food, and in fact, most of the calories from the Category 1 minimally processed foods. Going into the study, Hall was skeptical. Initially, I thought, probably not. There wouldn't be much difference. But he was wrong. We were measuring their leftovers, and we were basically calculating how many calories these people were consuming. And um, it turned out that when people were exposed to the ultra-processed food environment, they spontaneously gained weight, gained body fat, um, increased their calorie intake by 500 calories per day. His study was enlightening. It was pretty, pretty robust evidence that something about this ultra-processed diet, despite being matched for these nutrients of concern, caused people to overeat calories and gain weight and gain body fat, whereas the same people who, when we switched them to the minimally processed diet, they spontaneously lost weight and lost body fat. Amazing. It isn't about fat or carbs or sugar, but when people eat a higher proportion of ultra-processed foods, they eat more calories overall. Not only do they increase obesity, but studies show that ultra-processed foods are directly responsible for greater all-cause mortality. Eating five servings of them daily leads to a 60% increased risk of death. Yet ultra-processed foods are increasingly popular for a lot of reasons. They're inexpensive. They are convenient. They don't require a lot of time or skill to prepare. So it's there's a lot to like about ultra-processed foods, I think, and just the ubiquity. They're everywhere. So exactly how do ultra-processed foods lead to overeating? So you tend to get these concentrated, uh, concentrated calories in the foods, not because the nutrients are different, uh, but because they have less water associated with them. Hall's study found that people eat 65% more calories every minute when eating dense, ultra-processed foods. Some researchers even refer to them as pre-chewed. Now that's gross. And they're often soft and therefore easier and faster to eat. That's a big deal. Because maintaining weight is based on something called energy balance. The number of calories we eat versus the calories we burn. Our bodies have evolved to be extremely efficient at using the varying amounts of calories we consume. But there's more. You know, humans are not buckets with, you know, calories being poured in the top and calories coming out a hole in the, in the bottom. We're very complex physiologic creatures. And so the type of food you eat, the type of calories, not the amount of calories, 
can change what your body does with that energy, where it goes, how it works, and ultimately change the final energy balance equation. And so Dariush examples. The most important example, I think, is probably the gut microbiome. When you eat 2,000 calories in a given day, your body doesn't digest all of those 2,000 calories. Your gut bacteria digest a meaningful proportion of those calories. Now, that can vary quite a bit depending on the type of food that you eat. If you eat a very highly processed, uh, refined carbohydrate diet where the refined starches, refined sugars are getting digested very quickly, very little of those calories gets to your large intestine and the gut bacteria. If you're eating fruits and vegetables and nuts and, and beans and minimally processed whole grains, a lot of that food, including the calories, gets to your large intestine and the bacteria digest that food. And so, you know, by, by you know, some, some estimates, the amount of calories that your microbiome di can digest can vary from 5% to 20% of the calories you consume without even, you know, changing anything else about your diet. But our microbiomes aren't the only thing that affect obesity. So do our genes. Our genes impact how our brains process hunger in a way that's not necessarily within our control. One of the things that I've been so sh ashamed, shamed myself about, and was shamed in the tabloids every week about uh, for 25 years, is not having the willpower. And I think, you know, that is... Uh, there is a distinction between mindset, which we're now hearing the brain tells you a certain thing about how you process food versus the willpower. Can we talk about that? Absolutely. Because this isn't about willpower. Thank, Thank you guys, for saying that. I mean, that's Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford talking with Oprah way, Winfrey. Guys. It's just not in the science of this disease. This isn't me just making people feel good about it not being a willpower issue. It literally is not part of that regulation, those pathways. Mm -hmm. Dr. Stanford is an obesity medicine physician scientist at Massachusetts General Hospital and an associate professor at Harvard Medical School. She explains more about how our brains regulate hunger. There's all of this going on in our body, a lot of science going on, and, and these are the things that are influencing our interaction with the environment around us, what our desires is in terms of consumption, activity, et cetera. A lot of this is being influenced by our brain, much like our level of thirst. You know how like you decide you know what, for some reason I'm thirsty. Your brain is telling you you're thirsty. Because you're thirsty, you go and consume water. And once you're no longer thirsty, you stop drinking the water, right? So it's in, in many ways, our brains do that in terms of, of our eating. Sometimes it's dysfunctional and sometimes it's not. It just depends on who you are. Some people have anorexogenic brain pathways, which lead them to eat less and store less fat. That's great for them. Um, but for the rest of us, um, we upregulate a different pathway in the brain, what we call the orexigenic. It's a pathway that supports greater food intake, greater storage. Um, and so our brains are really influencing what's going on. Our brain is interacting with our gut, our GI tract. It's interacting with hormones that are stimulating um, our desire to eat, our desire to store fat tissue. There's certain key hormones in the body that tells us to eat more and store more housed in our brain. Which brings us back to one of the potential solutions to obesity. The FDA today greenlit another weight loss drug, joining a market that's already booming. Anti-obesity medications like Wegovy, Manjaro, and now Zepbound mimic hormones to affect how the brain processes hunger. These drugs can lead to weight loss of up to 20% for some patients. 
obesity costs the U.S. healthcare system almost $150 billion each year, but insurers are reluctant to invest in treatment, including anti-obesity medications. Drugs known to aid weight loss like Ozempic are only covered for patients who also have diabetes. So many folks who only have obesity are out of luck. Medicare population altogether is unable to access anti-obesity medications right now. Um, the people that are typically able to access these medications are those with greater socioeconomic means, better insurance coverage. Anti-obesity medications are very expensive both for insurers and those paying out of pocket. The high price tag of the drugs is compounded by the fact that they need to be taken indefinitely to work. The uphill battle to get insurance companies to cover anti-obesity medications reflects the prevailing social belief that obesity is due to personal behaviors. Getting obesity to be recognized as a chronic disease is only the beginning. It is indeed a marathon and maybe an ultra marathon plus, right, Um, in terms of addressing patients with obesity. Lower income, poor nutrition and diet related diseases are right now linked by, you know, hardcore steel chain links in the United States that we can't seem to break. But Dr. Mozafarian has another solution. I think, among other policy steps, having healthcare start prescribing healthy food for low-income Americans is a a good step to to breaking those chains. He's talking about food as medicine. It's a movement that emphasizes whole foods as a remedy for obesity, in which doctors prescribe food to patients as a form of medicine. Food as medicine attempts to increase food access in places like Phillips County through produce prescription programs, like Good Food Rx in Helena, West Helena where we meet Tiffany Johnson. The canned corn, the spinach, the green beans. The produce prescription program takes place in the gym of the community health center. It's run by Stephanie Loveless, the lifelong Phillips County resident, and Josh Harris. Josh is the founder and executive director of a mobile food access nonprofit called WellFed. It's an opportunity for all the participants to engage like they're shopping, so they get to pick out all their own foods. The tuna fish. Several tables are set up in a U-shape in the gym. They're covered in boxes overflowing with colorful produce. One at a time, participants move along the tables, filling grocery bags with fresh produce. Good Food Rx is the only produce prescription program in Arkansas. Each month, participants attend a nutrition class and then shop for Whole Foods, all at no cost to them. No black beans. Everything else. Tiffany's the shopper, and I'm the record keeper. We keep track of exactly everything they take. So we're tracking all the data of what they're actually eating, and then we're tracking the biometrics as they go through the program of what's actually changing in their health. It's a two-year pilot program, and today marks the sixth month. Josh tells us the importance of that long-term approach. Imagine you had an illness, and the doctor said, hey, you need... 20 days or 30 days of this medicine, if you just took two pills, two days worth, three days worth, do you think it would really help? No, it it wouldn't. Like no doctor would be like, oh, just take two and you'll be fine. They know the longevity of treatments are important. So when we think about produce prescription, it's got to be more than just, hey, here's a box or a gift card or something like that to just give you a boost. We, We don't just show up once. We go every month back to the same communities for years because we want to develop more than just eat healthy. We want to develop their whole life. It's the type of program that Dariush Mozafarian thinks of as a critical step in the right direction. 
so it's very clear that you know eating well is the most single most important thing we can do for our health because it's the top driver of poor health in this country. And more and more research supports just simple things like giving access to fruits and vegetables or other healthy foods can have pretty significant effects on, on people's health. We, we evaluated uh, uh, nearly 4,000 Americans across 12 states who had received produce prescriptions for an average of, of about six months. And we found first they ate more fruits and vegetables when they, when they received them. Um, they had significant improvements in their self-reported health, how they, how they felt. They had significant uh, reductions in food insecurity, but they also had reductions in their body mass index and they had uh, reductions in their blood pressure. And so that study shows that you know, just giving people healthier food can pretty significantly improve health and that it doesn't take you know, a decade for this to happen. In fact, Tiffany says she's already lost 27 pounds in the six months since she joined Good Food Rx. She tells us why she was inspired to join the program. Well, I really wasn't thinking about me at the time. I was thinking about my husband. Let's, let's see if I can do it and, you know, put it into our, you know, routine and see if I can help both of us. As Tiffany tries to improve her husband's diet, she finds herself eating healthier, too. I, I ate the fruits and vegetables, but I didn't eat them as often. I'm, I'm you know, like kids, I don't want to try that. No, well. But like I said, now, you you know, go to the store, I can pick out the fresh fruits and say, okay, well, if I dice this up and cut it this way or add this to it or this type of seasoning, it's pretty good. Tiffany's plan to help her husband eat better is working. He's a carnivore, so he, he loves meat. One time he said, would you make me a salad? A what? I didn't hear you say that again. Could you make me a salad? And that's what we had for dinner, a salad. And I've gotten him to go one day a week without meat, no meat at all. And it was shocking. And I'm like, okay, what did I do to you? Me being in this program helped you too? And he's like, yeah. I helped Tiffany carry her three grocery bags outside. How do you feel like getting to bring this stuff home for you and your family. It's wonderful because it it helps during the end of the month when you don't have money and, you know, you need extra groceries. So I have extra. So I can make extra meals and put it in the deep freezer, and I'm good. So this is a helper for me. I mean, a real helper. Yes. Tiffany's not alone in the challenge of affording healthy food. Since the 1980s, the cost of produce has increased by 25%. Meanwhile, the price of sodas and other sugary beverages dropped by 25%. Research shows that flipping that equation and lowering the price of fruits and vegetables incentivizes people to buy more produce. Food can be medicine. It can really change your body. And, and in a sense, we all know that. Like We all know healthy food makes you feel better and junk food makes you feel worse. We all know that. But to try and translate it into the healthcare system, it definitely is a challenge. For now, Good Food Rx is privately funded. And like anti-obesity medications, scaling food as medicine is an uphill battle. So getting healthcare payers and providers to come on board, I think, is critical for them to see that a therapeutic can be food. So how can we take on obesity as a global disease, just like we've done it before? More people are dying every year from obesity and diabetes uh, than will will die from from COVID. And, And so we really need to have that same urgency that this is 
not a problem of, of each individual person dealing with the problem, but something that society as a whole needs to, to take on. And if we do take it on, we can actually succeed. Obesity is a global disease whose affliction is greater than smoking and the COVID-19 pandemic. So finding its remedy requires strategizing by the whole of society. Some other nations are making progress. Chile banned advertising of ultra-processed foods to children and eliminated their sale in schools. While the U.S. lags behind, some modest progress is being made. Medicare and Medicaid are funding food as medicine programs as part of the Biden administration's goal of ending hunger by 2030. Several states are undertaking pilot programs to test the impact of healthy food interventions. Experts argue that the U.S. should also consider regulatory steps such as labeling. While a handful of jurisdictions are experimenting with soda taxes, large-scale adoption seems a long way away. But Josh Harris sees that small changes are already making a difference for people in Arkansas. When people really see how amazing eating healthy, lifestyle changes, and diet intervention can be, their life wins. If we can change and empower and equip that one person that they can change their spouse there, they can change their kids, they can make that influence because if they get it and if they're passionate about it, it's going to rub off on others. Tiffany is proof. I feel a lot different. When I wake up in the morning, I'm not as sluggish anymore. I'm not as tired. And it's great getting up in the morning and and not being rolling out of bed like, oh, do I have to, you know, and I feel so much better. I mean it. I feel so much lighter and happier now. Whole Foods are changing Tiffany's life. And in some Arkansas communities, even Dollar General is joining the cause. We're at the Dollar General in uh, Little Rock. And what are they supposed to have here? Fresh fruits and vegetables. And what's your bet? I don't know. Okay. Hi. Hi. Last year, $10 generals in Little Rock agreed to sell fresh produce, the first dollar stores in the nation to do so. Wow. You saying wow because you're impressed or wow because it's a little thing? Wow because I'm impressed they actually have it oh. and a variety at that. Corn, peppers, carrots. Go to town, Aaron. Mushrooms, romaine, celery, cucumbers. But of course, it's right across from the zombie takis. Strawberries, apples, watermelons, oranges, mandarins, cabbage, bananas, avocados. The producers of Century Lives are Carrie Thompson, Aaron Bump, and Camilo Garzone. Music for this episode was provided by Audio Jungle. Special thanks to the Oprah Winfrey Show. Support for this podcast comes from AARP, the nation's largest nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to empowering people 50 and older to choose how they live as they age. To find out more, visit aarp.org. And from the National Council on Aging, the national voice working to ensure that every person can age with health, financial security, and dignity. Learn more at ncoa.org. Century Lives is a production of the Stanford Center on Longevity, where our mission is to support ideas and research so that century-long lives are healthy and rewarding ones. You can find out more about us at longevity.stanford.edu. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Stern.